Let us pray in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Make known in us, O Lord, the abundance of your mercy, and in the power of your Spirit, remove the divisions among Christians, that your Church may appear more clearly as a sign raised high among the nations, and that the world, enlightened by your Spirit, may believe in the Christ whom you have sent, who lives and reigns with you in the unity of the Holy Spirit, one God, forever and ever. As T.J. announced, one of the purposes of the Center for Evangelical Catholicism is to host conferences like this one of general interest to the promotion of the gospel. Last year, our conference was on Islam and the evangelization of Muslims. This year, because of the 500th anniversary, the topic was obvious. Next year, we've chosen for our topic Catholic social teaching. And the subtitle of the conference is, It's Not What You Think. (laughs) Too many Catholics, including too many bishops and priests, labor under the misapprehension that the gospel requires us to be socialists of some kind. Our conference aims to dispel that misunderstanding and unfold the genuine teaching of the church. For now, however, back to business. And to introduce our final speaker, once again, T.J. Nielsen. All right, so I'm here to introduce our final speaker before our roundtable. And it made me think a little bit of the parable, um, I guess it's not a parable, but Christ at the wedding feast at Cana, in that hopefully we didn't save... The, the cheap wine for the end when everyone's befuddled, but rather we are saving the choice wine. Um, so there is great stuff to come. If you're not familiar with his story, um, Dr. Francis Beckwith, he's a professor of philosophy and church state studies at Baylor University in Texas. And he also serves as the associate director of the graduate program in philosophy and is the co-director of the program on philosophical studies of religion in Baylor's Institute of the Study of Religion. And with his appointment in Baylor's Department of Philosophy, he also teaches courses in medical humanities, political science, religion, and church-state studies. Um, Having been born in Brooklyn, which makes him a Yankees fan that we're not going to hold against him, um, he grew up in Nevada, in Las Vegas, and he was raised as a Catholic, but as Dr. Echeverria well pointed out. He is not a revert. He is a going forth vert. Um, <laughs> and that after he became in his, around his college era, sort of a same time for most of these people, that he ha- came to Christ outside of the Catholic tradition. And after college, he ended up going to grad school at Fordham University, did an MA, as well as a PhD in philosophy. And at one point, he ended up shocking sort of the evangelical world as he was sort of a very uh, prominent name as the president of, I'm going to butcher it, I'm sorry. Yeah, the, the Evangelical Theological Society. And when he resigned his commission in order to rejoin the Catholic Church. And anyway, he has written over 12 over a, yes, over 12 different books, including Taking Rights Seriously, Law, Politics, and the, Reason, the Reasonableness of Faith, which was his latest one, The Catholic Invitation to Latter-day Saints, A Second Look at First Things, A Case for Conservative Politics, Politics for Christians, Statecraft a Soulcraft, To Everyone an Answer, a case, a case for Christian Worldview, Law, Darwinism, and Public Education, The Establishment Clause, and The Challenge of Intelligent Design, and so forth and so on, as well as contributing to dozens of different journals, articles. Um, his biography, when I was trying to break this down, I was happy to get down to 600 words because it went on for five pages. Um, and in t- 2007, he was named the Person of the Year by the Inside the Vatican magazine. Um, and him and his wife, they live in... 
Texas, right outside of Baylor. And so I'm going to welcome to the stage, we're lucky to have with us, Dr. Francis Beckwith. Good afternoon, everybody. It's wonderful to be here. Thank you, Father Newman, for, for hosting this. Uh, I'm delighted to be uh, involved with the Center for Evangelical Catholicism. Uh, I consider myself a kind of evangelical Catholic, uh, partly because I believe that the role of the church is to evangelize, not only preach the gospel to those who are unbelievers, but also preach the gospel to those who are believers. It's sometimes a good thing to preach to the choir. Right, because the choir needs it just as much as those that aren't in the choir. Uh, as TJ said, I, I was president of the Evangelical Theological Society, and in May of 2007, I resigned, having returned back to the um, Catholic Church of my youth. Uh, in order to do that, I, I, I didn't have to go through RCIA because I had been baptized and confirmed. All I had to do was to go to confession. My wife, who became Catholic, um, joined me, uh, but she had not been Catholic, so she had to go through RCIA, and she really protested. She thought that was tremendously unfair. Uh, but my first, I went to a confession for the first time in 34 years. I walked into the confessional, and the priest, uh, I, the priest I went to was not the one that knew me. Uh, <laughs> at 34 years is a long time and enough time for one to get involved with all sorts of mischief. So uh, I walked into the confessional. The, the priest uh, was from East India, and I said to him, forgive me, Father, I have sinned. It's been over 30 years since my last confession. I, I'm not sure I can remember them all. And he said, that is okay. Just give me general categories. <laughs> So we were off and running, <laughs> and I left, and then uh, that evening wrote a letter to, because uh, uh, at that time I was president of the Evangelical Theological Society, and uh, wrote a letter to all the, the executive committee telling them what I had done, and said that I thought I could remain as president of ETS as a Catholic. Uh, and. I really thought that. Uh, ETS only requires one to accept the uh, infallibility of Scripture and the doctrine of the Trinity, and I thought as a Catholic I can accept that. Uh, but five days later, uh, I came to my senses and resigned, uh, I, and I think that was the right thing to do uh, because uh, as, as, a, as a revert, and I, I use that term, uh, Eduardo doesn't, but uh, I, it just sounds kind of cool, like convert, right? So uh, I, I thought it was the right thing to do because I think uh, as a Catholic, my job uh, or my task, my role as somebody that's returned to the church was not to make trouble, it was to live like Christ. And since that time, uh, I have been invited to speak at ETS uh, at least a half a dozen times. Um, I never was invited when I was an evangelical. I had, to, I had to sort of submit a paper and go through the process, and now uh, it's wonderful. I, you can't, when you, have, when you have 30 years of friendship, you, it simply doesn't ch change overnight. And so every time I attend, which is actually almost every year now since becoming Catholic, it's wonderful to be able to interact with my, Catholic fr my, my evangelical friends, and uh, I still keep in contact with them, and uh, they've enriched me, and... Uh, Hopefully, uh, what I have to say this afternoon will enrich you. So, the topic is natural law, natural theology, and the Protestant critique. The standard narrative goes like this. The Catholic Church teaches that human beings are capable of, of knowing by unaided reason the existence and nature of both God and his moral law. Protestantism, on the other hand, maintains that our cognitive powers so corrupted by sin cannot provide to human beings the power to know God and his moral law apart from special revelation, i.e. scripture. 
The Catholic Church teaches that the deliverances of natural theology are preambles to faith, and thus implies that in order for faith to arise in the believer, he must first know that God exists by way of his natural reason. On the other hand, Protestantism maintains that it is perfectly rational to have faith in God without the evidence of natural theology. The standard narrative, I will argue this afternoon, is mistaken, and that Catholicism and Protestantism are not really that far apart at all on the matters of natural theology and natural law. However, before I launch into my analysis, I want to make a few caveats. First, because of the wide spectrum of views that come under the umbrella term Protestantism, I am fully aware that there are going to be those who identify as Protestant who part ways with some of the critiques and views that I attribute to Protestantism. In fact, I have friends who, who in fact, would fall under that. So what I call Protestantism in this talk is a cluster of beliefs that imply or affirm that the human intellect is completely incapable of knowing anything about God or morality apart from special revelation that is Holy Scripture. The advocates of this view typically connect their beliefs to the Reformed tradition, although not always. You find individuals from different Protestant traditions holding similar views, and sometimes for different reasons. Second, because I'm a philosopher and not an historical theologian, much of my focus will be on recent discussions among philosophers and theologians uh, rather than on the historical development of doctrinal disagreement. Having said that, I will, when necessary, appeal to certain historical documents and figures in order to help illuminate contemporary debates. With these caveats in place, let's now move on to natural law and natural theology. What is the natural law? To say that a human being has the capacity to know the natural law is to say that there are normative guidelines for human action that are at their root not artifactual. And in that sense, they are natural. Now, what do I mean by not artifactual? That they're, what's an artifact? Well, the podium that's in front of us is, is, is an artifact. Our clothing are artifacts. But if you think about it, everything that we uh, know about in, the, in our world of artifacts ultimately are at root natural. Right? You sort of can't make a podium, let's say it's made out of an oak tree, without first having an oak tree. Right? So uh, those that believe in natural law or hold to the view of natural law believe that at root uh, our moral understandings are not artifactual. Uh, now, in the philosophy of law today, there are certain philosophers who argue that law is purely artifactual. Uh, and I think that's a view that I think all Christians should reject. Uh, but in particular, if you hold to a natural law view, you have to reject it. To embrace uh, the sort of natural law taught by the Catholic Church requires that one, be one believes at least three propositions. One, that there are some universal and immutable truths. Human beings have the capacity to know these truths. Human nature is the basis on which these truths are morally known. Now notice, when I say some universal and immutable truths, I don't mean that every uh, claim that is one may have about a deliverance of natural law is one of those immutable truths. Also, to say that human beings have the capacity to know these truths just means that they have the capacity, not that they're always exercising it, right? So I have the capacity uh, to know the color green even when I'm sleeping and my eyes are closed, right? So uh, and third, human nature is the basis on which these moral truths are known. That implies that when we talk about the human good, it's not simply about a moral rule. It's about what's really good for beings that we call human, right? So it's te tightly tethered to what we are, the sorts of things we are. Uh, I mention that because there are people who, who believe in natural law, uh, folks like uh, John Locke uh, and, and, and other thinkers who it's not clear that they embrace something like that, okay, the, the view that the Catholic Church holds. And even some people who identify with the new natural law, which is another topic for another lecture, uh, may very well not 
hold something quite like that either. Um, so, for example, the belief that courage is a virtue or cowardice a vice is a universal and immutable truth of the natural law that human beings have the capacity to know, and we know this on the basis of human nature. So, uh, according to the natural law view of the Catholic Church, we are rational creatures with natural inclinations to pursue what we believe is good, preserve our lives, beget and educate children, know truths about the divine, and live in a community at peace with our neighbors. Now, this term inclinations can be sometimes difficult to grasp today because we tend to think of inclinations as sort of visceral reactions to things that aren't ordered towards anything. But when the church talks about inclinations, it means that human beings have a kind of teleology or order to our powers that we don't really, are we not conspicuously aware of at every moment, but we know that. To, to, to coin a, to, to use a phrase that my friend Jay Budzieszewski uses, it's something that we can't not know. So, for instance, um, a couple of years ago when I was teaching at the University of Nevada, I had a student, uh, when I was teaching a course on ethics, she was defending relativism, uh, the view that there is no moral truth, and she asked me, uh, kind of in a snarky fashion, why is the truth important? And I answered her, do you want the true answer or the false one? <laughs> she had an, the very question showed she had the inclination to the truth, right? So when you hear somebody, let's say, you know, uh, you hear of a tragedy, let's say somebody takes their own life. What's the first thing you think of? Why did he do it, right? Um, but if, if that same person were to say something about that same individual and say, oh, I saw Fred today, he was walking across the quad, you wouldn't say, why is he doing that? In other words, you wouldn't be asking, why is he alive? Because you understand that life is a, is a good to which we're ordered, and if somebody were to do something contrary to it, they would need a reason, right? They need some kind of explanation. Um, so uh, that, that's what, when the church talks about inclinations, that's what it means. We have this kind of, um, uh, kind of uh, set of assumptions that we, that, that, we, that we hold that we're not really conspicuously aware of, but we actually really believe anyways. Uh, and it comes out in different ways. Now, later on, I'll, I'll say a few things about what happens when it seems as though people don't have those inclinations. Um, all right. So consequently... Certain types of ingrained habits like courage, temperance, fortitude, and justice seem fitting for a rational creature with such inclinations. The natural law the church teaches is the basis for legitimate human and positive law. Positive law means that we posit it, right? It doesn't mean that it's the law that like says positive things, right? It's, it means it in the sort of positing, like the government you know, simply at basis and authority says this is the law. This is why governments issue statutes that prohibit murder, theft, assault, and child abandonment and make policies they believe advance the common good. For example, compulsory public education, providing for policing and national defense, etc. It is the natural law that Martin Luther King Jr. had in mind when he wrote in his famous letter from a Birmingham jail, quote, an unjust law is a code that is out of harmony with the moral law, unquote, implying that there is a non-artifactual ethical standard by which we can judge our conduct as well as the civil and criminal laws of our nation. Relying heavily, he heavily, he heavily, well that's not entirely wrong either, relying heavily on St. Thomas Aquinas's understanding of the nature of the law, the church, the church, Catholic Church teaches, quote, Law is a rule of conduct enacted by competent authority for the sake of the common good. The moral law presupposes the rational order established among creatures for their good and serve their final end by the power, wisdom, and goodness of the Creator. All law finds its first and ultimate truth in the eternal law." Unquote. This means that the natural law participates in the eternal law that is the order of creation in the mind of God, because the natural law is made for rational creatures with a nature ordered towards certain ends. So when the Catechism or Aquinas talks about the eternal law, they mean the sort of order that we see in creation that's always eternally been in the mind of God. That's why it's an eternal law, 
right? It isn't as if uh, the universe uh, sort of can exist by itself eternally. It's that the law itself is in the mind of God in a sense. Uh, however, the catechism, oh, and by the way, when it talks about participating, it means that we participate in the eternal law insofar as God made us a particular sort of way. Right? So, uh, because we're rational creatures and we can make judgments and, and uh, have free will, we're, we have a different sorts of rules applied to us in comparison to, let's say, squirrels and dogs and trees. Right? They, there's no natural law for them. They're simply, uh, you know, sort of ordinary, uh, uh, sort of science, what we call scientific laws today, but they're not moral. There's no, you know, it isn't as if, um, you know, you can scold your oak tree for growing badly or something. Something like that. Uh, the Catechism, on the other hand, states, quote, the precepts of natural law are not perceived by everyone clearly and immediately. In the present situation, sinful man needs grace and guidance, excuse me, grace and revelation, so moral and religious truths may be known by everyone with facility, with firm certainty, and with no admixture of error, unquote. In other words, as Aquinas puts it, the natural law without the divine law, that is, without scripture, without the Old and New Testaments, is inadequate in directing man to his final end, addre addressing the inher inherent shortcomings of human judgment, uh, assessing a person's interior life, and punishing or forbidding an evil deed by means of the human law. In other words, the natural law doesn't do everything, and it can't do everything. Also, given man's fallen nature, the natural law though knowable and incapable of being fully eradicated, may be embedded in laws and customs that also include mistakes, both moral and metaphysical. Take, for example, a common precept of the natural law. It is morally wrong always and everywhere to intentionally kill an innocent person. Everyone seems to understand this and has no trouble accepting it as true. Yet the positive laws of many nations permit the private killing of innocent persons under the right to abortion. How can that be if everyone knows by the natural law that it is morally wrong always and everywhere to intentionally kill an innocent person? First, one can know that X is wrong while still committing X. Some of my students know that it is wrong to attribute to themselves authorship of someone else's intellectual property. <laughs> Yet they still do it. By the way, I once had a student whose plagiarism was so bad not even his sin was original. <laughs> Why do we make these mistakes? Well, human beings are not only rational, but we are also animals, meaning that we possess what Aquinas called concupiscible and irascible appetites that often draw them away, draw our, our ordinary inclinations away from what we know we ought to do or not to do. The plagiarizing student knows it's wrong to plagiarize, though he gives into the temptation because of the prospect of getting away with, uh, getting away with offers uh, getting away with it, which offers the promise of less mental anxiety and more free time to pursue classes he actually enjoys and extracurricular activities that bring him pleasure. Second, the human will can assent to beliefs that the intellect does not get right, and yet it may correctly apply a precept of the natural law to one of those mistaken beliefs. This is why there are many philosophers and bioethicists who agree that it is always wrong and everywhere morally to intentionally kill an innocent person. And yet they do not believe that an elective abortion ever violates that precept. Why? They argue that unborn human beings, though genetically homo sapiens, are not persons. Sounds kind of odd, but I'll have a few things to say in a moment about it. Just as human beings, or excuse me, just as some beings, like angels and perhaps Klingons and Vulcans, <laughs> if you're a Star Trek fan, are persons but not human beings, these thinkers maintain that some beings are human beings but not persons. These thinkers maintain that what makes any being a moral subject, i.e. a person, is its present ability to exercise certain powers and traits that we associate with more mature human beings, such as reasoning, consciousness, self-motivated activity, a capacity to communicate, having a self-concept, organized cortical brain activity, and or desiring a right to life. The church, in agreement 
with most every evangelical Protestant group, disputes this point of view and maintains that a person is not reducible to what he does, since what he does, engaging in personal acts, flows from what he is by nature a person. That is to say, what he does is a result of what he is. Nevertheless, the defender of abortion, by trying to justify his position, assumes the correctness of the same precept of the natural law embraced by the pro-life advocate. It is morally wrong always and everywhere to intentionally kill an innocent person. For the church, this is not a surprise. As the Catechism teaches, quote, application of the natural law remains as a rule that binds men among, excuse me, binds men among themselves and imposes on them, beyond the inevitable differences, common principles, unquote. Now I want to move on to Protestant critics of, of the natural law. Although in recent years, several Protestant defenses of the natural law have been published and well-received, opinion on the natural law still varies widely among Protestants. Because of time constraints, I can only briefly address the concerns of two types of Protestant critics. The first I call the frustrated fellow traveler. He is critical of the natural law because it has proved inadequate and unpersuasive in securing victory for socially conservative views in the culture wars. One such critic is my friend and colleague, Alan Jacobs. He's a professor at, uh, of English literature at Baylor University. In fact, before I flew out here uh, a couple of days ago after I completed these remarks, I sent them to Alan. And he wrote me back and offered me a few comments, and I sort of adjusted uh, my comments this afternoon in light of what, what he told me. Uh, agreeing with the eminent Orthodox scholar, David Bentley Hart, Alan writes that, quote, when it's time to persuade, arguments found on the existence of the natural law get no traction in the current intellectual culture, unquote. For this reason, Allen argues that, quote, in the short term, we need to find ways to commend our strongly held views without recourse to natural law arguments. And in the long run, we need to think about how the existence of natural law can be both plausible and appealing to people who now see nothing in it, unquote. I think Allen is partly right. He's surely correct that on certain contemporary political questions, for example, the legal recognition of same-sex marriage, natural law arguments have not won the day and that many people find them unpersuasive. But natural law arguments on specific questions have rarely ever won unanimous and universal acclamation. This is because they often involve judgments about what St. Thomas Aquinas called the secondary precepts of the natural law. And such judgments are subject to all the vicissitudes of human fallenness that bedevil every individual and culture. As Aquinas notes, the secondary precepts of, quote, the natural law can be blotted out from the heart, human heart either by evil persuasions, just as in speculative matters, errors occur in respect of necessary conclusions, or by vicious customs and corrupt habits, as among some men, theft, and even unnatural vices, as the Apostle states in Romans 1, were not esteemed sinful, unquote. So what Aquinas is saying is that one can be sort of habituated to not sort of um, logically come to conclusions that seem to flow naturally from the natural law, but you can't completely blot it out. And I'll have something more to say about that in a few minutes. So Aquinas says that, nevertheless, as far as the general principles of the natural law, he writes, in the abstract can no wise be blotted out from men's hearts, even though those who hope to vindicate new customs historically proscribed by the natural law have to rely on it in one way or another. Whoops, whoops, excuse me. So, for example, in his majority opinion, well, let me just re repeat, I, I was distracted by my falling paper, which actually fulfilled an aspect of the natural law. <laughs> um, even those who hope to vindicate new customs historically proscribed by the natural law have to rely on it in one way or another. So, for example, in his majority opinion in Obergefell versus Hodges, Justice Anthony Kennedy makes his case for the legal recognition of same-sex marriage, 
not by inventing a new value, as C.S. Lewis would puts it in, would have put it if he were around today in his book, The Abolition of Man. By t what, what, what I think uh, Kennedy does is, quote, this is again taking, quoting Lewis here from The Abolition of Man, taking fragments from the natural law or Tao, arbitrarily wrenched from their context in the whole, and then swollen to madness in their isolation, yet still owing to the Tao or the natural law, and to it alone such validity as they possess, unquote. So, how does Justice Kennedy do this? Justice Kennedy writes, quote, that from the, their beginning to their most recent page, uh, the annals of human history reveal the transcendent impor importance of marriage, unquote. After citing Confucius and Cicero, and acknowledging how untold references to the beauty and grandeur of marriage have been expressed through the ages in a variety of forms and across different cultures, he concedes that, quote, it is fair and necessary to say these references were based on the understanding that marriage is a union between two persons of the opposite sex, unquote. But in Obergefeld, Justice Kennedy claims that the marriage he is securing in his opinion is in historical continuity with the marriage of the natural law, even though each of its three conditions, permanence, exclusivity, and conjugality, have been largely eradicated from the positive law and significantly diminished from in the culture. It is only by cobbling together accidental features that flow from the instances of natural marriage and that are also found in some non-marital friendships, that is, fragments of the natural law, so to speak, that Justice Kennedy's understanding, the appearance of being in continuity with the ancient origins of marriage that confirm its centrality, unquote. So what I'm going to show here is that I, I think that what Kennedy is, is, is almost gives almost a perfect example of what Lewis is talking about, and I think what, in fact, Aquinas is trying to communicate and what the church is trying to communicate in terms of that you cannot fully blot out the natural law. So Justice Kennedy, for example, points out, among other things, that same-sex couples have romantic feelings for each other, sometimes adopt children for whom they seek legal stability, desire that government ascribe dignity to their unions, and would accrue numerous state benefits, as do ordinary married couples if their unions are officially recognized as marriages. However, these accidental features, that is, romantic feelings, children, government recognition, and state benefits, though, they, though, though often accompanying marriage, may in fact be present in non-marital relationships and absent in real marital unions, even though one of them, the caring of children, is a proper accident of the marriage of the natural law. The term proper accident, it's a kind of technical term in, in Thomistic thinking, and it just simply means that it's a feature that naturally flows from the sort of being you are. So uh, the ability to think rationally is a proper accident of human beings, but if you never achieve it, that doesn't mean you're not a human being. So a proper accident of a marriage is, is the uh, uh, begetting of children, but if it doesn't occur, it doesn't mean it's not a real marriage. Okay, so that's what that, that term means. Whereas other features are not necessarily proper accidents. Like, so receiving uh, government benefits or state you know, tax deductions, there's nothing in the Bible that says there has to be tax exemption uh, for certain types of corporations or certain deductions on your, uh, on your, your taxes for being married or anything like that. All right, for this reason, Justice Kennedy's Obergefell opinion seems to make the Catholic Church's point. And here I'm going to quote from the Catechism. Quote, even when natural law is rejected in its very principles, it cannot be destroyed or removed from the heart of man. It always rises again in the life of individuals and societies. Unquote. That is, the truths of human nature embedded in the natural law are so fundamental to human flourishing that even those who, who attempt to support a practice traditionally condemned by the natural law must do so by deploying its moral grammar. Alan's concern, that is, Alan Jacobs' concern, concerns are understandable given the way in which natural law is oftentimes offered in political disputes as a kind of perfectly rational lingua franca that implies that all dissent from its deliverances is always the result of bad faith or bad reasoning. This is largely a consequence of the way advocates of contemporary philosophical liberalism, that is, people like John Rawls and Ronald Dworkin, have conceptualized the public square. 
Uh, these are two figures, some of you may have heard of them, uh, both uh, American philosophers who had a profound influence on the way uh, I think American courts have thought about the relationship between religion and the public square. The public square should be neutral, and if you offer reasons for policies that are coercive of other citizens, uh, you need to give what are called public reasons. Well, what are those? Those are reasons that even somebody from your particular, who don't, does not hold your religious beliefs, would find acceptable. And so uh, what I'm arguing here is that uh, there are many people who hold to natural law who think to themselves, um, when that kind of argument is offered to them, they, they think something like this, oh, we have our own public reason, uh, we call it natural law, and we can beat you at your game. Uh, well, I'll let that go. Uh, so because the expectation is that whatever is a good public reason should be nearly unassailable, the natural laws frustrated fellow traveler is disappointed when he discovers that many otherwise rational secular compatriots find natural law arguments unpersuasive for positions with which he is sympathetic. So he concludes that somehow the advocates of natural law have failed. But as we have seen, the Catholic Church's understanding of natural law, as defended by theologians like Aquinas, is not advanced as an answer to the concerns of political liberalism. It is offered as an account of the precepts that seem to underlie the diversity of practices, laws, and customs among human civilizations. So like Johnny Lee's bar-hopping cowboy who was looking for love in all the wrong places, Alan is looking for natural law in all the wrong sages. <laughs> I could be put in a penitentiary for that one. The second type of Protestant critic of natural law, I want to call the solo scripturist. Solo, not sola. Sola scripturist. It's actually a variation on a term that was coined in 2001 by the Reformed theologian Keith Matheson. Because the solo scripturist wants to defend the integrity and uniqueness of the Bible's message, he argues that natural law is a poor substitute for the sure and stable deliverances of divine revelation. He also argues that when natural law advocates confidently claim to have established universal moral knowledge, they understate the noetic effects of sin as taught in scripture. A leading defender of this view was the late evangelical theologian Carl A. Fitch Henry. In a piece he published in 1995 in First Things, Henry wrote this, quote, the three contentions of the Thomist doctrine of natural law that evoke evangelical criticism are, one, that independently of divine revelation, two, there exists a universally shared body or system of moral beliefs, and three, that human reasoning articulates despite the noetic structures of the Adamic fall, unquote. But once one attends to what Aquinas actually taught and with which the Catholic Catechism is in full agreement, the distance between what Henry and other Reformed thinkers believe about the natural law and what Aquinas and the Church believe seems almost negligible. For St. Thomas, there are two senses in which the natural law is not independent of divine revelation or what he calls divine law. It is not independent in the sense that the natural law participates in the eternal law which is also the source of the divine law, that is, the Old and New Testaments. It is also not independent in the sense that the natural law, as we've seen, is incomplete and inadequate given human nature in its ultimate end and fallen state. Writes St. Thomas, quote, If man were ordained to no other end than that which is proportionate to his natural ability, there would be no need for man to have any further direction on the part of his reason, in addition to the natural law and humanly devised law, which is derived from it, unquote. But human beings are designed for beatitude, eternal happiness, which exceeds their natural abilities. For this reason, God must provide to human beings divine law in addition to natural and human law so that we can be directed to fulfill our divine purpose. Moreover, writes St. Thomas, quote, because on account of the uncertainty of human judgment, especially on contingent and particular matters, different people form different judgments on human acts, whence also different and contrary laws result. In order, therefore, that man may know without any doubt what he ought to do 
and what he ought to avoid, it was necessary for man to be directed in his proper acts by a law given by God, for it is certain that such a law cannot err. So he's saying another reason why we need the divine law is that if we just had the natural law, people would come to conclusions that would be, seen, would, would be reasonable given just the, having the natural law, but with the divine law, things are clarified or excluded. There is, however, of course, even another sense in which the natural law is not independent of divine re revelation, and that is the Bible itself teaches it, as many scholars, both Protestants and Catholics alike, have ably argued. Because this is an exegetical question that we do not have the time to address in great detail, I'm going to simply point out a few of the many places in Scripture in which the existence of a natural moral law not known through special revelation is presupposed or implied or, or asserted. So, for example, how did Cain know that it was wrong to murder his brother Abel? Given the absence of any divine law at the time, perhaps Cain should have hired a better lawyer. What does it mean to honor your father and mother if you don't already know what mothers and fathers are and what it means to honor them? Although David knew that adultery and murder were wrong, why did Nathan's story of the rich man's taking of the poor man's only ewe lamb work so well to prick David's conscience? And why do those unacquainted with the biblical tradition seem to grasp the moral gravity of the wrongness uh, implied in Nathan's telling of the story? Why did Jesus believe his audience would know that giving one's child a stone rather than a loaf of bread was not something a good parent would do? The parable of the Good Samaritan seems to work, even though the lesson that Jesus is trying to teach requires his audience engage in a type of moral reasoning that leads them to the conclusion that the only person in this scenario who acted rightly, the Samaritan, is the one person who does not have the Mosaic Law. What could St. Paul possibly mean in Romans 1 when he appeals to universal knowledge of the demands of the created order while noting that there are those who, quote, suppress this truth by their wickedness, unquote. In that same letter to the Romans, uh, chapter 2, verses 14 and 15, St. Paul states, quote, For when the Gentiles who do not have the law by nature observe the prescriptions of the law, they are a law for themselves, even though they do not have the law. They know that the demands of the law are written in their hearts, unquote. Although Henry, Carl Henry, seemingly rejects what appears to many as the plain reading of this passage, that St. Paul is in fact teaching that there exists a natural law accessible via unaided reason, St. Thomas and John Calvin, in their, each on their commentaries on Romans, disagree. Since I am not one to quibble with the perspicuity of Scripture when it is to my advantage, I am with Aquinas and Calvin on this. Finally, for St. Thomas, the natural law is not, as Henry states, a universally shared body or system of moral beliefs, as if it were a complex collection of rules to which everyone has immediate and infallible access. To be sure, there are general first precepts of the natural law that everyone knows. But as Aquinas notes, these precepts may be applied differently, given, different, given certain conditions, or particular cases may be obstructed by an unruly passion. So the person who murders in a fit of rage, even though he knows murder is wrong, right? Uh, but when it comes to the secondary precepts, according to Aquinas, as I've already noted, and here I'm going to quote a passage I quoted earlier, the natural law can be blotted out from the human heart, either by evil persuasions, just as in speculative matters errors occur in respect of necessary conclusions, or by vicious customs, habits, as among some men, theft, and even unnatural vices, as the Apostle states in Romans 1, were not esteemed sinful. So it seems contra Henry that the Thomistic and Catholic view of natural law does in fact hold that the fall has had a deleterious effect on our noetic powers. In fact, without that belief, it would be nearly impossible for advocates of the natural law to account for disagreement and cultural diversity. Thus, one could say that the belief in man's fall makes the Thomistic and Catholic view of natural law more plausible, not less. Uh, Alistair McIntyre, a philosopher at Notre Dame, has made this point that what eventually drew him to Thomistic natural law is the fact that it can account for why people disagree, which is sometimes a, a difficult problem for moral theories that say that it's sort of the obvious or correct view. All right, let's move on to natural theology.
What is natural theology? Well, it's not the opposite of unnatural theology. Natural theology is a philosophical project that maintains that one can acquire knowledge of the existence and nature of God by means of one's rational faculties without the benefit of divine revelation. In the Catholic Church, it is a de fide dogma, meaning that it is an essential belief of the Church. As the First Vatican Council teaches, quote, the same Holy Mother Church holds and teaches that God, the beginning and end of all things, can be known with certitude by the natural light of human reason from created things. For the, and here it's a quoting from Romans, uh, for the invisible things of him from the creation of, uh, of the world are clearly seen uh, being understood by the things that are made, unquote. Notice that this does not commit the church to affirming that particular philosophical arguments for God's existence are sound, though the church does teach that we can know by reason that, quote, the world and man attest that they contain within themselves neither their first principle nor their final end, but rather that they participate in being itself, which is alone without origin or end, unquote. It's a kind of fancy way to say um, people sometimes just, it occurs to them that their existence is received and not fundamental. That is that you know, I'm here, I depend on other things for my existence. That's true of everything. How can that be, right? That's all that it's, it's suggesting this passage from the Catechism. All that the Church is saying is that the human mind has the capacity to know the certitude that God exists from its creation. One could, for a variety of reasons, not exercise that capacity. As St. Thomas writes, quote, for many are unable to make progress in the study of science, either through dullness of mind or through having a number of occupations and temporal needs, or even through laziness and learning, all of whom would be altogether deprived of the knowledge of God unless divine things are brought to their knowledge under the guise of faith. Unquote. And neither does the First Vatican Council commit the Church to claim that it is only by means of arguments that the natural light of human reason may know that God exists. One could, for example, immediately become convinced of God's existence when one first sees the majestic beauty of the Grand Canyon or the elegance of a mathematical account of the movement of heavenly bodies in the Milky Way galaxy. Technically, in each case, one is not arguing to belief in God as, as when one infers from particular premises uh, the conclusion God exists, even though it is by the light of human reason uh, and not special revelation that one comes to this belief. This is because, as the Church also teaches in the Catechism, quote, the desire for God is written in the human heart because man is created by God and for God, and God never ceases to draw man to himself, unquote. Now on to Protestant critics. As in the matter of the natural law, Protestants hold a variety of views on natural theology. In fact, in contemporary Christian philosophy, some of the strongest proponents of natural theology are Protestants. Uh, these include figures like William Lane Craig, uh, J.P. Moreland, Robin Collins, Charles Tolliver, Douglas Grotice, James Sennett, Richard Swinburne, who was converted to East Greek Orthodoxy, but uh, when he wrote most of his work, he was an Anglican, and my friend and colleague, C. Stephen Evans. There are, of course, many critics. However, because of time constraints, I'm going to focus on a Protestant objection to the Catholic understanding of natural theology that I think rests on a misunderstanding that when answered shows that we are much closer than we think. It goes something like this. The Catholic Church maintains that natural theology is a necessary precondition for authentic faith, which makes acceptance of the gospel message seemingly out of reach for most ordinary people. Carl Henry, for example, in his monumental six-volume, God, Revelation, and Authority, I think offers a kind of version of this argument, or not directly offering it, but actually kind of, he, he, he offers an understanding of natural theology, I think, lends, its, lends itself to, to this objection. Uh, and this is an extended quote from, from uh, that section of God, Revelation, and Authority. In developing the empirical case for theism, Aquinas' larger aim was to prepare the natural man, once convinced of God's existence by his own reason and apart from revelation, to accept supernaturally revealed truth. The Thomistic way broke with the Augustinian 
and, and Selmian, I believe, in order to understand tradition, as, as, as with the Tertullian, I believe because it's absurd, and it's I understand in order to believe, made room for natural or philosophical theology as pre preparatory for revealed theology. But what does he mean here? He sees in the history of the church kind of two, um, two sort of extremes. I believe in order to understand that is, you know, I, I, in order for me to understand the world, I must first believe. And the other view is, I just believe because it's absurd. And the attempt on the part of Aquinas and, and what officially becomes the Catholic view is that I understand in order to believe. That is, I need to have arguments in order to be a kind of faithful, rational Christian. So let me continue here, uh, second paragraph. While Thomas Aquinas approaches the existence of God both from man's ordinary experience and from special revelation as starting points, he nonetheless invokes philosophical theology or metaphysics, a type of human knowledge open to everyone to supply the foundations of faith. Aquinas considers the first use of philosophy in respect to theology to be the demonstration of, quote, items that are preambles to faith. And that's a, uh, uh, Henry is quoting here from a passage in uh, Aquinas' commentary on Boethius's uh, treatise on the Trinity. In his highly influential book, Philosophy and the Christian Faith, the uh, retired Fuller Seminary professor, Colin Brown, argues that Aquinas, and by default the Catholic Church, is, quote, adopting a two-step process in presenting the case for Christianity. The first step is to use philosophical arguments to lay the foundation. The second is to complete the job by appealing to Christian teaching. We might also call it the two-story view of philosophy and faith. The ground floor is built by reason and the top floor by faith." Unquote. Earlier in his book, Brown chastises the advocate of natural theology by pointing out that belief in God as creator and designer of the universe is, quote, an article of faith based on an awareness of God over against ourselves, not a rational deduction to be drawn by those capable of following certain arguments. Unquote. Ironically, one of evangelical Protestantism's strongest proponents of Aquinas' metaphysics, Norman Geisler, seems to think that the purpose of natural theology is exactly what Henry and Brown think it is. You know, with friends like this, right? Uh, Geisler argues, quote, that theistic proofs can play a very practical role, indeed a crucial one. It is, an essential, it is as essential that men be convinced that there is a God before they trust in him as it is essential that a groom be convinced there is a girl standing at the altar before he says, I do, unquote. And then Geisler goes on to say, religious experience reveals that men need God, and if reason can aid in assuring men that there is a God there to fulfill that need, so much the better. If, on the other hand, the theistic arguments turn out to be unreasonable, then there may be a God, but no good reasons for believing God exists have been provided, unquote. Even though Henry and Brown and, and like-minded theologians are correct that there are those who see natural theology as a precondition of faith, as in the case of Geisler, that is not the position of the Catholic Church. The Church's understanding of natural theology neither implies nor affirms that everyone who has faith in God knows God, quote, with certitude by the natural light of human reason from created things, unquote. As St. Thomas states, quote, there is nothing to prevent a man who cannot grasp a proof, excepting as a matter of faith, something which is itself, uh, in itself is capable of being scientifically known and demonstrated. Unquote. And neither is the church saying that faith requires that one must first prove that God exists by the natural light of human reason. As the Catechism teaches, quote, what moves us to believe is not the fact that revealed truths appear as true and intelligible in the light of our natural reason. We believe because of the authority of God himself who reveals them, who can neither deceive nor be deceived, unquote. For those who may think this is a new teaching of the church that developed in response to Protestant critiques of natural theology, they're mistaken. It can be found in Aquinas, who writes, Again, quoting from, from the, from the uh, Summa, the existence of God and other like truths about God, which can be known by natural reason, are not articles of faith, but are preambles to the articles. For faith presupposes natural knowledge, even as grace presupposes nature, and perfection supposes something that can be perfected, unquote. 
According to St. Thomas, the preambles of faith are not preconditions of believing in the articles of faith in the apologetic sense that one must be convinced of certain arguments before one's assent to faith can be rational. Rather, the preambles of faith are simply those things that one can know about God and his existence by the natural light of human reason without assenting to the articles of faith. This is why Aquinas writes in his commentary on Boethius's De Trinitate, quote, Error arises if, on matters of faith, reason has precedence over faith and not faith of reason, to the point that one would be willing to believe only what he could know by reason, when the converse ought to be the case. Wherefore, Hillary says, quote, while believing in a spirit of faith, inquire, discuss, carry through your speculation, unquote. How could theologians as learned as Henry and Brown have missed this? My hunch is that it is the result of interpreting Catholic, the Catholic view of faith and reason through modern categories. What do I mean by this? And here I want to just, I'm going to conclude with this uh, uh, by just briefly talking about the work of, of the esteemed reform philosopher Alvin Plantinga. Uh, Plantinga defends the rationality of belief in God by suggesting that faith is a means by which one could, not by suggesting that faith is a means by which one can acquire truth not accessible through reason, but rather by arguing that modern views of reason are the culprit. That is, uh, we inherited a particular way of thinking about rationality, and it turns out that that view of rationality winds up excluding belief in God because. Uh, it requires that we have to give evidence for belief in God. And Plantinga says, well, why can't belief in God uh, be rational without having us be required to give reasons? Because there's lots of things that even people that hold to a modern view of reason don't think they need reasons for, right? So the belief that, uh, let's say, that, um, that other minds exist, that there are people out there in the audience that are listening to me, I don't believe that based on evidence. I don't walk up to the podium and say, I sort of, you know, engage in discursive reasoning, like, oh, I see people out there, uh, they behave in certain ways, therefore I have mind, they have minds. No, I believe it immediately, right? And because I believe it immediately uh, means that I don't believe it on the basis of something else. It's just something that's what he calls properly basic. And so Plantinga's project, which is a project that a lot of reformed thinkers have, is to sort of tell the modern Enlightenment person, uh, you guys are defining uh, reason in a capricious, uh, in a capricious way, and and Plantinga also adds to his view uh, something that he thinks uh, uh, that he gets from John Calvin: this understanding that God naturally places in us uh, the sensus divinitatis, that is sort of sense of the divine, and so when we have certain experiences in life, uh, sort of you know a kind of divine awareness is triggered in some way. So the goal of this view is to sort of rescue theological beliefs from this narrow view of reason. Uh, but that's not the project of, of, of people like Thomas Aquinas or the Catholic Church. Uh, they hold, they, the view is that, uh, that faith, uh, that what we know through faith uh, is different than what we know through reason, but it's still knowledge. And so the debate, it seems to me, the confusion uh, I think arises the consequence of having two different understandings of faith and reason and a, a slightly different understanding of what counts as knowledge. It would be, it would be like arguing with somebody, uh, uh, let's say you, you're talking to someone about what you, what you think is football. And you say, yeah, you know, Tom Brady is a great football player. I saw him, you know, uh, pass the ball. And he says, you can't touch the ball in football unless you're a goalie, right? <laughs> And, and you realize, oh, we're talking about two different views of, oh, you're, you're talking about soccer, right? So I, I, think, I think there's something like that going on with the, with, the, with the different understandings of faith and reason. And that, in fact, Plantinga himself in his, his, his most recent massive volume, his sort of magnum, magnum opus, Warranted Christian Belief, actually calls his project the Aquinas Calvin Project. He has since he has just changed his views over three decades. It, it doesn't hurt to have uh, uh, Ralph McInerney and Alfred Ferdoso as colleagues at Notre Dame, and I think that was largely the reason why he, 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 he in his book Warrant to Christian Belief, he says this much. He, he sort of uh, distances himself in his earlier understanding about natural theology. So, 
there are clearly disagreements between Catholics and Protestants, most of them centering on issues of ecclesiology, the sacraments, the authority of tradition, and so forth. However, on the issues of natural law and natural theology, I just don't think we're that far apart. Thank you very much.